Paul talks about some practical things is that is Timothy is to relate to the elders there at the church of Ephesus. The first thing he says is that the church is to honor their elders. He says that we need to honor the elders. Now, <clears throat> the topic of elders came up back in chapter 3. We spent two weeks back in November talking about elders. If you weren't here or don't remember what we talked about, you can go back and check those messages out. The, the elders are those who are appointed by God to lead the church, to be the spiritual leaders of the church. Chapter 3 talks about the qualifications that they're supposed to have in order to fulfill that role. Um, we talked about that the elders... Uh, the term elder in the Bible is used synonymously and interchangeably with terms like overseer and shepherd and pastor. Uh, these are the spiritual leaders that God has called to lead a church. Now, when churches were established in the first century, they were understandably small. In fact, most of the time they met in houses and in, in small gatherings of people. And and what would happen is that the, the apostles or guys like Timothy were to find faithful, qualified leaders and appoint them as elders. What happened is the church began to grow and the gospel began to spread as these groups got bigger or there were, there were more and more house churches in a city. It seems like uh, from the study of the first century that both groups kind of met. And when you look at the Corinthians, it looked like they all got together as a large group like we do here on Sunday mornings. But it often, often they were meeting in houses because they didn't have public buildings. Christianity was facing a lot of persecution in the Roman Empire. And so these house churches would grow and these elders would be appointed and would be serving. And most of these elders were, were lay elders. They had other jobs. And so Let's say uh, this guy Bill is an elder, and he uh, sells um, trinkets at the market at his day job, and he's working his 40 hours a week. And then on the side, he is trying to shepherd and to teach, and he's trying to study for when they have their next gathering so he can teach the word to their little house church. And uh, other elders are realizing, wow, uh, we could use somebody who can put in their, their full effort, their full time into the ministry here. And they said, you know, Bill is an amazing expositor of the scriptures. Like when he starts talking about the Bible, people sit forward and, and they, they, they learn and they understand and light bulbs go on. And Bill really cares for souls and he, he lives a life of integrity. Bill, I think that you should consider doing this full time. The church is going to support you to be able to give your whole life, your whole effort into this ministry. So you don't have to go work your 40 hours a week at the market. That's how this kind of began to develop. And so Paul says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor. That word labor is the idea of intensive effort, pouring yourself into preaching and teaching. And so all the elders were worthy of honor, and, that, and part of that was respect. Part of that was the honor, the 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 reverence that was due as men who had been appointed to lead the church. In fact, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13. He says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The believers were to show honor to elders. But he said to those who are laboring in the ministry, those who are leading well, he said there should be double honor. He's talking about more than just giving a tip of the hat or calling them Mr. So-and-so, but to, um, to take care of them 
in a financial way. This didn't involve only respect, but also remuneration. The New Living Translation translates verse 17. He says, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. And he uses an illustration in verse 18 from, he actually quotes both Moses and Jesus to illustrate this point. He says, Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then his quote from Jesus is, the laborer deserves his wages. Um, the picture of an of a ox treading out grain was they would, they would put it would spread the grain out on a hard surface, and these oxen were to walk around in circles and tread the grain, and, and as they stomped, stomped it and trampled it, the, the chaff would blow away, and the grain would be ready to be collected and gathered. And some of the pagans would muzzle the oxen so that they couldn't bite down and have a bite to eat. The pagans were thinking of themselves and wanted to gather 100% of that grain for themselves, so they didn't care if they worked their beast to death as long as they got the grain. And Paul to, or Moses told the Israelites, you're not supposed to be like the pagans. Don't muzzle an ox when he's treading out the grain. He's supposed to be able to grab a bite to eat while he's working. He's supposed to be able to reap benefit from the fruit of his labors. And that's exactly what Paul's point is here, that those who give their lives to the ministry, those who serve with their time, and then that becomes their vocation, their full-time job, so to speak, make sure that they're able to reap from the fruits of the ministry. Um, Paul explains this and backs this up in other places. He gives a defense for this in 1 Corinthians 9. If, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to, or just jot a note. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14, where he's explained to the Corinthians, listen, I have chosen not to take a salary. Uh, Paul, we know, was a tent maker on the side. And he didn't want to be, have any accusations from these churches. He traveled around that he was in it for the money. And so he chose to take very little by way of resources from the churches he went to. Some of them sent it anyways, uh, like the Philippians. Uh, but he says in, in chapter 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have, an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Here's what he says. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? Don't we have a right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Or who goes and plants a vineyard without eating some of its fruit? Or who tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? No. Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses. You're not to muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share 
in the sacrificial offerings, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul here in these passages is establishing a biblical basis for financially supporting those who are putting their full-time life and effort into the work of an elder. We said when we looked at chapter 3, there are those elders who are lay elders. It doesn't make them any less qualified, but they've, they've been called to remain in their vocations. And then there are those who are elders, pastors, who are putting their full time into the work of the ministry. And Paul says that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You can understand why it's a little awkward to preach about these things as someone who receives his uh, paycheck from the church. Um, this, this is awkward, but um, it has to be remembered by, by pastors and, and ministers that um, we're always called to come back to, what are you in this for? Like if it ever becomes you're in this for what you get out of it, then your heart has come to the wrong place. Like he already told them in chapter three, um, he said, those who are, um, those who are uh, let me quote it right, um, if, if, uh, those who are lovers of money, those who are lovers of money have no place in being an elder. Those who are in it for the financial gain and for making a name for themselves are disqualified from being an elder. But that said... God's people are supposed to take care of God's ministers. Some churches uh, have the philosophy of, uh, when reg- with regards to taking care of their pastors, let's, let's keep them poor and keep them humble. And the principle here is the complete opposite. Uh, Paul says in, in, in the passage we read in 1 Corinthians 9, he's like, listen, don't, don't, don't pastors have the right to have a, have a family? And, uh, and like, you wouldn't send somebody off to war on their own dime. They're, they're, provided for so that they can do the work that, the, that they're called to do. And he talks about the same, it being the same way with ministers of the gospel. He, he makes it clear um, that those who labor for the cause of Christ should be taken care of by the people of God. And lest, uh, it's important to remember that that God is not just speaking to the, the committees that set the salary. I mean, this is, this is morphed into something different than what they would have understood in the New Testament, uh, what we have here in, in 21st century American culture. Um, but this is the whole body is supposed to think like this. Like, how can we care for those who feed us week in and week out? How can we care materially for those who pr- uh, provide for and care for us spiritually? Um, and so, as a church, we should always be asking, how can we show honor to those who proclaim and teach the Word of God, those who are our shepherds? It's an important question to ask, but enough of that. Let's move on. Number two, he says, we shouldn't just be honoring elders, but we need to be protecting elders. You've got to take care of those who are your shepherds, provide for them financially. Don't, um, don't make them um, struggle to make ends meet. But he said the other thing you've got to do is protect them. Protect them. 
Verse 19 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, do you remember in the Old Testament, this was a biblical principle in the Old Testament. You couldn't, you couldn't make an accusation unless you had some witnesses, and it couldn't just be one person. There had to be multiple people to be able to testify or to back up their claims. And he says the same should be true of elders. Now, there's in any, in any life scenario, when you have someone who is out front leading, that leader has a target on his back. You think about your workplace. How many times have you seen or heard the boss being criticized? And you, you walk around the corner. Maybe you are the boss. You walk around the corner and you hear people whispering, and all of a sudden they get quiet when they see you. As the comedian Brian Regan says, they didn't, they didn't invent whispering for compliments. <laughs> You know that there's something going on there. Uh, leaders often have a big target on their back. And uh, that was so true in the Word of God in biblical times. I mean, think about the leaders that had false accusations brought against them in the Scriptures. You had guys like Joseph and Moses, David, the prophet Jeremiah, Nehemiah, and of course, Jesus himself. Leaders are often the subject of unfair ridicule. And Paul is reminding Timothy here in this church, he said, now listen, I want you to be careful about giving ear to accusations and charges against elders. He doesn't say don't do it, but he said, I want you to be careful about it. Let there be a couple of witnesses. In this day and age, especially, it is so easy to discredit a leader. With social media, I mean, how many times have we seen from one tweet a CEO being forced to resign? One person begins to complain and then it takes off like wildfire. And before there's even a chance for due process, the, the trial by social media has, has concluded this person is not fit for their office. I've watched the same thing happen in churches. I remember one pastor, when I was a teenager, our church was looking for, uh, they, were, they were searching for a pastor. Our pastor had resigned, and they had had a candidate come in. And he was doing a Q&A time with the, uh, the congregation. And uh, someone asked him why there was this huge gap where he was out of ministry. He'd been a pastor in his younger years. He went into secular vocation, and now he was back into full-time ministry. And he said, well, the truth was, he said, I was serving at a church, and uh, I was nearing the end of my, my day in the office. I was the only one there. And I was just locking up the church. And uh, I was walking out of the building. And a lady pulled up in the parking lot and wanted to use the church phone. And um, he said, we had, a, we had a cordless phone at the time. I said, well, I'm not going to go in there with you alone into the building, but I'll go get the phone and bring it out here and you can make the phone call. And he went into the building and she followed him in there and uh, ran out screaming and proceeded to make accusations that he had, he had assaulted her. And he said there was no basis in it. But what was I going to do? It was my word against hers. And he was forced to resign from the church. He left the ministry. And it wasn't until years later that that woman came forward and said, uh, went back to the church and admitted what she had done, that she had made it all up. And, and it was all some, uh, just a ploy to be able to get attention and uh, to, to make it a personal attack on this man. And he had years of discredit because of this one accusation. Um, 
We have to be careful as a church. But we also have to be careful the other way because so often there are, there are pastors who gain so much power in a church and there's a, almost a, I don't know if you've ever been in a church where there's like a personality cult around this guy. I mean, maybe he's written books and he's a conference speaker and he's got a mega church and it's almost like no one would dare speak evil of his name. Like when they mention his name, they have to bow three times and cross or something. Like there's just like pastor so-and-so, they worship the ground he walks on and he can do no wrong. That is the other side of the dangerous spectrum where no one could bring up a, an accusation. And I, 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 this has been in, in the news. If you follow church news in the last uh, 18 months or so, uh, this has been in the news over and over and over again where accusations were brought. And because this leader was so-called untouchable, uh, they, the, the, the person was brushed aside. In reality, the, there, there had been dozens of people bringing accusations, but because this person was so worshiped, they, they were just brushed aside and discredited. And so you have two, two, two opposing things here that the Apostle Paul is trying to deal with. He says, make sure there's a few accusations, but at the same time, we have to make sure that sin is dealt with. And that's the next one is correcting elders. Correcting elders. We have honoring elders, protecting elders, and then correcting elders. Because there are times when those accusations have basis. And these elders have erred, they've wandered from the faith, they've wandered from the, the qualifications that they had previously met by being men of integrity and character, and something happens where all of a sudden now, as verse 20 says, they've begun to persist in sin. And he says, for them... Rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. What a sobering verse. He said, when you have two or three witnesses, when there's been a situation where this elder's life no longer matches the, the profession that he made, the qualifications he's supposed to manifest... He says, when he persists in sin, he needs to be rebuked before all. Now, this is really important. Notice the language. For those who persist in sin. It doesn't say when, you, when they sin, automatically haul them up to the front. Like, like if I say something hurtful or sarcastic and unkind to Hunter, our youth pastor this week, it doesn't mean that the church is supposed to haul me up front for a public flogging. But when sin is not repented of, when an elder has dug his heels in and says, I'm not changing. The evidence is before them. You're in sin, pastor. And they fold their arms, they stiffen up. And begin to make their excuses or turn the tables and what about you? You've never sinned, right? Whatever it is, Paul says it needs to be dealt with. You see, as believers, <laughs> we, if you're a Christian, you've been forgiven by God's grace. The Bible says that you are a new creation. That is, that is incredible, incredible, glorious truth. 
The Bible says you have new life in Christ Jesus. You've experienced the new birth. You're his son or his daughter. But Scripture also teaches that we're still sinful. We've got one foot in heaven. We've experienced the saving grace of Jesus, yet we're still burdened by, by the sin nature, by the flesh, the Bible talks about it. And so sometimes the, the, the desires of the flesh, well, we give in to them and we sin. We say something we shouldn't. We think something we shouldn't. We, we do something we shouldn't. And our heartbeat as a Christian should be the moment we realize that should be to cry out to God in confession and repentance. It may be the Spirit of God convicting us. It may be our spouse pointing it out. It may be a loving Christian brother or sister who has the guts, the courage to love us enough to say, brother, you are wrong. That is sin. And the moment the Spirit of God points that out of us, points it out to us, our heartbeat should be to cry out in repentance. And, and that's going to be a daily thing for God's people. But for an elder, when it stops becoming a daily thing, when your heart grows hard, when you begin to think that you're above the rebuke of the brother or sister, when you're above the ministry of the body of Christ, and pride so engulfs your life that you have dug your heels in, and you're going to persist in this sin? Paul says, don't, don't just dismiss them quietly. Don't just let them hop in the car and leave and go to another church. And when someone says, hey, where's, where's that one elder? Oh, we, we replaced him. He, he's going to another church now. He, he says, don't just dismiss it and, and cover it up. He says, this person needs to be rebuked in the presence of all. He says, why? So that others may fear times we need to be gripped with the gravity of the consequences of sin. We already saw in chapter 1 that there were elders who had been put out of the church because of their false teaching. We need to be sometimes shaken by just how serious unconfessed sin is. Paul is not trying to embarrass anybody or saying, let's make a public spectacle of this guy just for entertainment's sake. Now, he, he wants the church to grab a hold of the understanding that when we allow sin in our midst, when we're okay with it, when we cover it up, when we, when we pacify it, it's like a, well, he said in chapter one, it's like gangrene. It's like an infection that spreads in the church. At times, elders need to be corrected. And just one note on verse 21, he says, um, to make sure that you keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This, this means that, that you don't give certain elders special treatment. Well, he's been here a long time, and he gives a ton to the church, and he's well-known in the community. Let's just kind of ignore this a little bit and just kind of, you know, pass over it. No, no, no. He says, do this without partiality. Make sure that you follow these steps with an elder without partiality. And then finally, he, he tells them, uh, gives them a few thoughts on selecting elders, selecting elders. In verse 22, it says, don't be too hasty in the laying on of hands. Uh, the, the, the laying on of hands was a, was a physical process, a physical sign to show this person was being uh, set forth as an elder in their midst. He said, don't rush to that. Don't be too quick 
Um, You have to take time to make sure that they're mature. And we saw that as we looked at the qualifications in chapter 3. He says, don't appoint a new believer to this position. Make sure that you've taken time to get to know them a little bit. He says in verses 24 and 25 that the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. That's why he wants you to wait a little bit. I actually learned something this week about the English language. I have always thought for 38 years that the word conspicuous meant hidden. And this verse did not make any sense to me as I was reading it over and over again. And then I looked it up and conspicuous means obvious. And some of your translations say that. Inconspicuous is hidden. And I should know that. But I did not. And I learned that this week. And then the verse made a whole lot more sense to me. He says, sometimes people's sins are obvious and everybody can see it. And other times it takes a while for them to come to the forefront. They're good at hiding. They're good at being sneaky. And he says, that's why you shouldn't rush to lay hands on someone as an elder. Like, ooh, they're really involved. Hey, they just retired and they've got a lot of energy and time on their hands. Let's make this person an elder. Don't rush into it for for." human reasons or practical reasons, but make sure you take time before laying on of hands. Um, verse 23 is a funny little insert. If, you've, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul's writings, I love him because he's a little bit like me. He has an ADD brain that will run in different directions that don't make much sense to anybody but him. And he does this in verse 23. In the middle of his discussion on elders and these practical commands on appointing elders, he says to Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And I was scratching my head thinking, how does this fit into my outline? How does this fit into the flow of what Paul's saying? Most of our English translations help us out by putting parentheses around it. Because most of the scholars recognize that this is like a little tiny rabbit trail that Paul goes on. Something in what he's telling Timothy about elders has sparked this little thought. And he's, he's speaking about Timothy having some wine to help with his stomach problems. He had developed stomach issues. And it's funny, but perhaps the rabbit trail that Paul was thinking about was, listen, You've had a lot of headaches in dealing with these elders. Like we said, chapter 1 tells us that some of these guys had to be put out of the church. They were, they were teaching things falsely. If you've spent any time in ministry, you know that it can be at times a bit, shall we say, stressful. And I think that maybe Timothy had an ulcer. I don't know, but he was struggling with his stomach. And in the context here, I think maybe it was just because he had really been battling with some of these serious issues, not the least of which was false teachers distorting the gospel. And Paul's like, by the way, just a little note from Dr. Paul, uh, have some wine to help your belly. And and basically, this is just a command to those uh, in ministry and frankly, to all of us, take care of yourselves. Be mindful that that your physical body has needs that need to be cared for. And pastors, I just I read a great book a year or so ago on how how pastors just do such a poor job so often of physically taking care of themselves, making sure that you get enough sleep at night and making sure that you get some exercise and eat well. And it seems like unspiritual to talk about those things. Like like the qualifications to be a pastor are spiritual things. I don't have time to think about that stuff. 
But as, as people who are, I mean, we can't divorce ourselves from the body, our physical bodies. If, if we're serving the Lord, we need to make sure that we incorporate a well-rounded view that brings into caring for your, your physical needs um, and not at the expense of focusing only on your spiritual needs. Paul helps Timothy with some practical uh, pointers in reminding him to honor the elders well, to make sure that they're getting paid and taken care of, especially those who are laboring, pouring themselves into preaching and teaching, and those who are ruling well. He says, I want you to make sure that you're protecting elders from false accusations. I want you to make sure that you're... um, that you're correcting them for those that, that have fallen into sin, those who, who uh, have had accusations brought against them that are true, that you deal with them. And then he helps remind him that in selecting, elder, selecting elders, care needs to be given. As we think about these truths and how they apply, uh, it can be easy to, like we talked about last week with the widows, to say, well, this is just the, this, this is another passage to throw upon the church leadership. Like, that's, that's their job to take care of the elders. If we, if we think like that, we're minimizing the importance of the body of Christ. We're forgetting that we're all part, we're all in this together. We're all ministers of the gospel, Yes, some have been appointed elders as those who lead. Some of those elders have been set aside to be here full-time and to be paid. But we're all ministers. We've all been given the same spirit. We're all members of the body of Christ. And we're all in this together. As we think about how this applies, we need to remember that God has, actually has a design for how the church should run. Like these are not just simply suggestions. What we've been looking at in 1 Timothy, we've talked about this being the blue, God's blueprint for the church. These, these things are not like recommendations from Paul. Like read the book through sometimes and see how many imperatives there are, like commands. Paul saying, this is what you need to do, Timothy. This is what needs to happen in, among my people. God gives us a design for how the church should run. He may not spell out everything, but he gives us some very clear directives. And then as I thought about this passage, I was reminded of the generosity of God in his gospel. These verses started out with the reminder to be generous to your pastors and the elders, to care for them. And and every discussion of being generous should ultimately point us back to God in his great generosity towards us. We sang songs to start off our day here with, with phrases like, how marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. We have a God who has lavished his love upon us, who is oh so generous, has been oh so good to us. The gospel, the loving God would send his only son to die for sinners, is what points us toward being generous people ourselves, towards those who take care of those who feed the flock. Let us be a church that mirrors God in his generosity as we appoint, care for, protect, rebuke, 
and serve those who lead the sheep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths point us to the one who is our true shepherd. When our Savior walked upon this earth, he made it clear that he was the good shepherd, the one who perfectly loves the sheep, who who gave himself for the sheep. And then as he left and returned to your right hand, Father, he left the apostles with the job of appointing under-shepherds, qualified, faithful men who would care for his followers. But I pray that each of us as elders and pastors would do that well and do that faithfully. Lord, if you're, you're beginning to call and raise up future elders from our midst, would you begin to prepare in them a heart like Christ, a heart to serve, a heart to feed the flock, a heart to lay, them, lay themselves down for your sheep. God, we want to be a church that as we think about biblical eldership, we want to be a church that lines up with the scriptures and in the ways that which we don't, Lord, help us to make those adjustments in the way that we function, the way that we appoint and even in laying on hands for elders. May we abide by these truths, put them into practice. We're so thankful that as we think about the generosity that you call us to, we can step forward in obedience because we have a God who is infinitely generous to us. You give and you give and you give and the love that you show us is immense. So like Paul, I want to pray this morning, Ephesians chapter 3, that we would know the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of your love for us and that we might generously show that not just to our leaders but to one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.